vi får ikke noen flere, så hvis du, skal, hvis du noen gang skal være interessert i geologiske poker, så er faktisk nå tiden, liksom. Om uh, 10.000 eller uh, 100.000 år, når robotan som kommer efter oss skal lære sine barn om den geologiske perioden vi nu er inne i, så kjenner de til å kalle den opp efter oss. Vi tar for oss antroposen, menneskets geologiske epoke. I tillegg i dagens sending, Pokémon Go, nu også for byutviklingsfantaster. Men først, forfatterne Jeff Dyer og Bjørn Gabrielsen skriver begge reportasjer og kulturkritikk som ikke helt passer in I, I vanlig format. De to møttes på Morgenbladets salong på litteraturhus i Oslo, som en del av den norsk-amerikanske litteraturfestivalen. Dyer eh, har blant annet blitt kjent for, for boka But Beautiful, som, som handler om jazz, men som er vanskelig å kalle hverken sakprosa eller skjønnlitteratur. Kulturredaktør i Morgenbladet, Anne Farsetås, leder samtalen og startet med å spørre Dyer hvordan han endte opp med å, å skrive akkurat denne type tekster. Of course, it's so great to be here in the kind of Norwegian-American festival, because as a English writer, there's no greater honor than being sort of becoming an American writer. So I, I feel I've really, really made it now. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, normally when when this kind of thing comes up, it's normally I sort of try to go at least 20 minutes before mentioning the name of John Berger. But in yeah. fact, it seems to me we, I've got to mention him straight away. Uh, because my first unbelievably boring book, which uh, someone had a, a, a copy of, here it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a book about John Berger. It was published in 1986. And John Berger had been incredibly important for me. I think more than any other writer, it was him that made the possibility of becoming a writer available to me, in that when I left university, um, how old are you, Bjorn, if it's not rude to ask? Forty-nine. Forty-nine. Okay, I'm, uh, as often, as is increasingly the case, I'm the oldest person on the panel. Uh, <laughs> I'm 58, and when I left university in, in 1980, uh, and then I started reading John Berger, I mean, before I'd come across him, really, it seemed to me there was a straightforward choice about the kind of writer you were. You could either become a writer, which meant you wrote novels, or you wrote about other people's novels, that is to say you became a critic. Since I never had any ability at all to think of plots or stories, which is you know, part and parcel of being uh, a novelist, as the novel was then conceived, uh, that meant, you know, oh God, I've got to be a critic. But that didn't <laughs> entirely appeal. And of course, John Berger famously made available um, in a, in a kind of homegrown way, this thing wh- which I'd associated with Europe, with Roland Barthes and this kind of thing, the idea that you could come up with a kind of writing which was both commentary and creative, which was both imaginative and a form of criticism. Uh, and this was a huge liberation for me, and I duly you know, wrote a book about him. And then almost as soon as I finished it, I thought, what am I, what if I, I've written this unbelievably dreary book. There's this writer who's made available all of, all of these different freedoms, and I've subjected him to exactly the kind of standard academic processing, uh, which he sort of, his example, you know, said you really don't need to do. 
Tellingly, after I'd finished my dreary book about Berger, which totally failed to do justice to him, <laughs> the publisher of that book said, what would you like to do next? How about a book about Raymond Williams? <laughs> so there it was, this destiny for me that I'd be... Uh, Writing just, boring books for the yeah, rest just of your write, life. Well, I'd write synoptic books about <laughs> other writers. And I think the virtue of the Berger book is it got a certain amount of sort of some sort of academic insecurity out of my system. And I remember thinking I would never do that again. Um, I then wrote a novel, and now, well, don't worry, I'm not going to spend the next hour talking about my, you know, everything I've written. But importantly, I think the, uh, the book that I wrote after my first novel, the book about jazz, but beautiful, an attempt to listen to, listen to and write about jazz with that incredible intensity that Berger famously brought to bear on, on paintings. You know, I did that, and that book was dedicated to him, and I felt that was that sort of paid the debt that, uh, that I'd racked up with, with the boring book about him, because I felt that really was a, a fitting tribute to him, and it took full advantage of the kind of freedoms that he'd made available. So, and did you know a lot about jazz when you started this book? Uh, do you know, uh, by the end of the book, I'd got to exactly the point that I, I was exactly as qualified as I needed to be in order to begin it. Yeah. But that's something that Berger had really made, you know, ma made so uh, uh, plain to me. I think I'll just say one more thing, because I'm so conscious that I, I want to hear from Bjorn, but so often when you, uh, you, read, you open a book and the author sort of addresses the kind of reader he or she has in mind, that is to say, it's a book either written for fellow experts radically shrinking the audience, or it's for that mythical thing, the general reader, in which case it's all a bit sort of, you know, I mean, the current mode, I think, that's very popular in, 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 in English language writing is, is to write in a kind of, uh, to, to write in a kind of jolly way, you know, um, to, to write, yeah. Uh, and the great thing about Berger, it seemed to me, in, in something like his book about Picasso, he completely collapsed that distinction, i.e. it was a book that could be read with incredible pleasure uh, by somebody who'd barely seen a picture of Picasso, and it would be full of these kind of incredible li uh, lightning flashes of revelation, and they would be revelatory even for somebody who'd spent their whole lives um, uh, uh, studying Picasso. So the collapse of that distinction, so we're talking about the distinctions between different genres of books, but I think quite important for me was the collapsing the distinction between uh, distinct genres of audience, if you like. Exactly. Mm. Bjorn, did you start out with writing uh, boring academic texts about things you knew a lot about, <coughs> or I generalized uh, things <coughs> about things what, you knew nothing what about? What makes reading Jeff uh, so, uh, quite, quite painful is uh, uh, it's sort of like meeting a doppelganger. Who's, uh, <coughs> who's, who might be better looking, but you know I can't hold anything against them. So, <coughs> but I feel we landed in, at the same place from very different vantage points. I, I started uh, w w with a sort of punk aesthetic, uh, where I, I wrote for a, a magazine called Notto Dog, which is uh, an Eskimo version of, of uh, Village Voice, maybe. <laughs> and, <laughs> And I wrote film reviews, and these were films that would be reviewed pre you know, at an earlier point by the daily press. So I had no advantage of being first, uh, nor was I particular, you know, I was not well known, um, and I had no standing, so I thought I'd, I'd utilize this. Uh, and so I, I ended up, instead of writing about the films whose plots and synopsis would be, you know, dredged and 
spewed out by that time. So I wrote a lot about myself, <laughs> uh, which was vastly interesting to me. And it, <laughs> and, and it, it felt at the time, uh, you know, before all social media and before, uh, it, it felt fresh and new. And I, it, um, one of my big heroes at that time was Kurt Vonnegut, who would write essays uh, writing about how stupid he was and how he smoked too much. And, uh, and, and that seemed to me, you know, the, one of the few ways I could, could shine. I, I couldn't compete with the others, and I, I felt I was uh, the little man, and I was on, um, uh, I was on the same side as the readers. And also, I had the advantage of being nobody writing about Hollywood, mm -hmm. so I could be as savage as I wanted, because yeah. I would never meet these people while buying bread or diapers, or yeah. <laughs> which is very different from writing about Norwegian <laughs> literature, I can tell you. <laughs> But how did this go down? You said you, you felt like you were humble when you wrote about yourself. Yeah. So how did this go down yeah, with the audiences? Because it was quite unusual at this yeah, time I, in Norway. I don't know if you felt this, but I, I wrote very self-depreciatingly and, uh, um, and disparaging about myself. But what I didn't realize is as long as you have any kind of soapbox, as long as you can get any kind of attention, people will think that you're... Uh, that you're boasting. Everything you say will come off mm -hmm. as, uh, as being cool or thinking you're cool, which, which, <laughs> which I might have thought you know, <laughs> deep into the, if we're going to be therapeutic about this, uh, yeah. uh, but which I honestly thought I, uh, I, I wasn't doing. And it, uh, I, I then started writing for uh, Honest, current news, newspaper, and I wrote film reviews, much in the same vein, and I got a very, very angry, incredibly intemperamental uh, letter saying, this man clearly does not know the difference between film reviews and a Lonely Hearts column. Uh -huh. <laughs> so he's, all he's doing is trying to get laid. <laughs> so the, uh, <coughs> the people who did the layout of the, of the newspaper the next week, they, instead of writing film on the header, they wrote film slash Lonely Hearts. <laughs> 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 and in a sense, uh, she was right, but I had quite honestly not, not thought of it that way because I had no <laughs> self-awareness, <laughs> clearly. Do you feel now that, uh, you know, the subjective form has become more, more um, normalized, you could say? Uh, it's not maybe the same as in the 90s now that you have, for example, the novels of Karlov Knavsko being so uh, subjective and uh, with a strong eye. Is this changing for you in any way, or is it the same as it was? I, I spent a lot of my professional life uh, reading new Norwegian novels. And if you want to be evil about it, you can say, it's, you know, it's, it's me, 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 look. I'm, e I'm in Paris with my dad, me, 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 some sex parts, and <laughs> me, me, me. Uh, and it's just astonishing how much of it uh, there is. And it, a lot of it is actually quite good. Mm. Uh, but a problem for a critic is to get enthusiastic about it, time after time after time. Um, so, so I feel, uh, you, you know, you can't criticize people for, for not having written a different book. This is the, the book they chose, chose to wrote, write. Um, so, so sometimes I, I feel there, um, um, 
I, I, sometimes I wonder if some kind of monster has been created where there's no, no longer any, uh, any limits for what you can say and what you can do to promote yourself. And uh, bringing social media into this is, in, in one sense, very boring, but people our age are influenced by something and we influenced somebody else, and surely this has contributed. Um, so I've come to the point where when I get a new novel and it's about something which the author could not possibly have, have experienced himself, I think, well, good for him. Yeah. Extra points. Mm -hmm. You know, my God, he made something up. This is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> but I just read a wonderful book about uh, the cuckoo. Cuckoo, cheating in nature. And it's uh, the author the is a cuckoo yeah. expert. Yeah. Hmm. And he, um, uh, he has a biography which somehow makes this cuckoo expertise seem logical and, you know, the only possible outcome of, of his childhood. But at the same time, of course, it's a book about cheating. And you about do, you do. Did you say cheating? Cheating, yeah. yeah, because the cuckoo is a cheater. Yeah, yeah. So, and yeah, of course, you know, all readers must wonder, you know, what's his life like with his wife? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but, um, but he also writes about the phenomenon of cheating in, in nature and how animals use these horrible, horrible methods to cheat in uh -huh. the vilest w ways. But I can't help wondering, what's his next book going to be? You know, he's, <laughs> he spent his life studying cuckoos. Yeah, yeah. I would read his ne next book, but what's it going to be about? Yes, interesting. God. But then, well, you know, I, I, I have a great fondness for those New York Review of Books uh, reissues where, where, where several things have gone on. One, they've completely redefined classic, where it can mean book that disappeared the moment <laughs> it was published. <laughs> and they have a great fondness for these writers who only wrote one book. Mm -hmm. I think that's quite an... In and one of those writers, maybe, maybe technically wrote two, but there's a book, J.A. Baker, about the peregrine. You know, it's called The Peregrine. Guy's obsessed with peregrines. And it's sort of... His obsession is so great that it doesn't surprise one at all that he never did anything else. He fulfills his ambition in this book where he sort of at one point becomes a peregrine, uh, in, you know, imaginatively, and then that's it. You realize, you know, he, he's fi finished for good. I mean, what I like about that is that in order to write another book, you have to sort of become a completely different person, as opposed to this thing of, I've done the peregrine, now I'll do the gospel, you know, now I'll do whatever, you know, and you work your way through the entire sort of aviary like that, you know, which is, as you were saying at the beginning, is a more traditional way of uh, proceeding. But the idea also that uh, I think with one particular sub, you know, you do, you evolve a form that's appropriate to one particular subject, and then that form is pretty much useless when it comes to another subject. So a form that's absolutely appropriate for the cuckoo book or the peregrine book or jazz or whatever, it's not just a question of, trans, you know, of transporting that same template across to a different topic. Do you think consciously about this when you write and start on a new subject? You're such an amateur in the sense you, you write about what you love and you, you don't necessarily know much about it to start with. Do you decide beforehand it's going to be a different way? Um, it's, I don't think I decide consciously, but I'm really always, uh, I'm pretty confident that it's I'm always hoping, yeah, that I, I know it, it needs a form of its own. Mm -hmm. And at some stage, the 
the voyage of discovery that I've, I've embarked on will hopefully gen will, yeah, will generate a form and a tone that's, uh, that, that's appropriate, but it's not, it's not conscious. I've only ever become conscious of it with books I failed to write. So, uh, um, you know, one of the reasons I'm always blowing on about tennis, I think, is because I failed to write a book about it. And I think the reason for that is because I couldn't come up with a, f a form that was somehow tennessee, whereas the jazz <laughs> book was jazzy, the book about photography was photographic and so on. But, you know, the, the, the book about tennis, had, I just couldn't come up with a, a tennis-like form. So uh, if anyone has any ideas, I'll be paying you 10 kroner for <laughs> world rights. Well, maybe you need someone to play with, because tennis is a two-person oh, game. Uh, yeah, so, uh, I see. You'll write it with Bjorn. <laughs> <laughs> And what about you, Bjorn? Do you feel the need to invent a new form for each subject? I have some very strict forms. I, I, uh, I have a daily column where I in interview people, mostly in the business community, about what they read. Um, and I have some rote questions which I use um, because it's comfortable and, and it's easy and I don't know what, what, else, uh, what else to say. But there's a legendary column in this uh, newspaper where business leaders are being put to the test. What the, do you read? One guy had it before me. He, he started the column when he was 72 and continued until he was 86. Uh, ah. So I, I, I found out if I continue until I'm 86, I'll, <laughs> I'll have interviewed 2% of the population about, <laughs> about what they read. And, um, uh, and, and there's something in enormously liberating in, in having this very narrow format, and it needs to be exactly 2,000 mm -hmm. characters. Um, uh, but but, but I, I, I find, well, this is very personal, but I find it, it fluctuates. Sometimes I think I want to throw up. I can't ask, I can't ask these questions anymore. 70% <laughs> of them read mostly crime fiction, and I need to keep them on the line so I need to feign an interest, an empathy <laughs> in, in, in crime fiction. Um, and I always think, I, I can't do this anymore. And I, I can't ask them what did they read as kids, because so many have read uh, The Hardy Boys and yeah. Nancy Drew. And, uh, and at, at, after five or six years, I no longer had any questions <laughs> about The Hardy Boys. Um, <laughs> Uh, but then sometimes I, I feel almost euphoric. I feel I can use these uh, pretty similar questions, and I can use this pretty you know, equal format, and, uh, and we can talk about incredibly interesting things. And in the space of 2,000 characters, sometimes the, you know, people will say, supposedly normal, normal people will say fantastically uh, you know, wise and, and, and pleasant things. Um, just a random example, but I, you know, it's one of those anecdotes you've told once, and it, you just end up telling it, even though you have thousands <laughs> of others you could have told. But there's one guy who said he was so afraid of when his daughter was going to say, "Dad, you don't need to read at my bedside anymore," because that was such a big part of his his life, going into his kid's bedroom and reading for. Her. And I felt with him, you know, that that must be a terrible day when your kid says, "Well." when, you know, you can't read for me anymore. 
So I asked him, well, how old is she? And he said, well, you know, uh, she's 16. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, was just, I just enjoyed thinking, you know, she's been thinking, let him read and it's nice uh, enough. Uh, <laughs> and another woman told me she'd been, she had a, a child with Downs and uh, she said all kids love repeating. But her kid had taken the, you know, perfected this repetition. Yeah. So she had read the same book to her child for 12 years, <laughs> every night. And it was a cookbook. <laughs> and I was just so touched. I thought, this is the most wonderful person yeah, I've ever spoken yeah. to. Great. Uh, and I imagine if I had you know, less, less of, a, uh, of a stringent form, I would probably be on the same wavelength. Uh, and the same goes for, for writing reviews, where uh, I, I really feel, you know, I'm going to vomit by uh, reading more <laughs> books about young Norwegians and their existential things. And there's always going <laughs> to be something about language, how language is important <laughs> and language. And, and it's interesting, and it's well done, and I, you know, I write it's well done, but I think I can't take it. And then the next book, it's exactly the same, but I think, well, this is great. Maybe hormones or something. Yeah. <laughs> and will you be writing a memoir about this phase? And will you call that memoir, I can't take it? Yeah. yeah. That, that's <laughs> what, what is also similar with you guys is that you are both critics and reporters. Like you write about art and you talk to people and do actual reportage from places. You travel places. Except that's not... I was gonna. It's so yeah. It's so much. These things are much more fun when you disagree with you. Yeah, other, absolutely. Aren't they? So I would say that I no, I'm not a reporter. Yeah. Um, um, uh, and I mean, I'm really persuaded of that because um, the book before last was this thing where I spent two weeks on an aircraft carrier, a U.S. aircraft carrier, and was, you know, wrote a little book. And in the course and. Uh, in the course of this book, I realized that of all the kind of writers I'm not, a reporter is absolutely top of the list. Um, and I say that absolutely not with any... I'm not saying it to say I'm superior to, to reporters, because actually at this phase of my life, I mean, it's, it's something... I mean, just to... Uh, I think this might be relevant, you know there's been some discussion about you know when is the great novel going to appear out of the you know out of the wars of you know afghanistan and iraq and you know uh, i felt so convinced no it's crazy to be waiting for that novel because actually there's this amazing these wars have generated an amazing amount of literature it's just it's not coming in the form of the novel it's come in the form of uh, reportage from, from American writers. Anyway, so this was when I went on that aircraft carrier, this was when I was really uh, venerating the idea of the reporter, and I realized that it, I just lacked everything that the reporter <laughs> needs, um, observationally, but also a, no, a physical uh, uh, disadvantage, I realized, because there's that famous bit where Joan Didion says, you know, the only thing I've got going for me as a reporter, she says, I'm so you know, inarticulate, so physically small that, you know, people don't even know I'm there. And here am I, this big galomphing thing. And I'm always <laughs> in the way kind of thing. So I just realized that, and then just the amount of, just the kind of scrupulous you, scrupulousness you need as, as a reporter, um, it really, uh, yeah, I realized it, it wasn't me. So um, 
uh, in a sense, yes, yeah, so I wouldn't dignify anything I've done with the word reporting. So, <laughs> how do you like them bananas? <laughs> I love it, oh, because about? that <laughs> means that there's hope even for uh, <laughs> critics and essayists who aren't great reporters. Det var altså Anne Farsetås som leder den her samtalen mellom Jeff Dyer og Bjørn Gabrielsen. Du kan se hele den her salongen om du går inn på morgenbladet.no-portalen. Arkitekturtidsskriftet Kote, som er en av samarbeidspartnerne i Morgenbladets tidsskriftsportal, har, sammen med Lilly Labs og Lytter Røre og en rekke skribenter og lydprodusenter, inkludert oss, eller strengt av meg, her i Morgenbladets podcast, laget herfra. Det er et kartfestet digitalt magasin om Oslo. Du kan få, få tilgang til det gratis på, på telefonen din om du går in på oslohistorier.no-herfra. Jeg velger av, av rent tabloide grunner å kalle Pokemon Go for byutviklingsinteresserte. I herfra så kan du høre det som kalles stedspesifikk radio, altså lydklipp om stedet der du faktisk er. For eksempel eh, om du har havnet på, på, på Lillaker på Ullern i Oslo, så kan du trykke på play og få det her lille intervjuet med Harald Brevne, en lokalbeboer. Vi hadde jo et sånn uh, rettegoapotek her da. Der var det en sånn det hade bara i gamla dagar och då var det var mysta ansatte som kunde komma var lördag och ta sig en flaskosen det där så blev det restaurang och vi som flöjde där inne och drack var där vi hade sitt eget språk så när vi kom du in där hörs inte ingenting av vad du sa och då var det sån där stickor på avmuljörta så det har ju varit for andre så er det småbypreg. Lillake var jo en av som vestkantens østkant. Du hadde Murstafabrikker. Det er jo CCVS der. Der var det Fiskekorokfabrikken. Og så hadde du da... Der var det parkeringsplass i dag. Da. Der nede, der var det arbeideboligen. Og hvis du går på andre siden bak det huset som ligger på haugen der, så ligger det to arbeideboliger som de har tatt vare på. Lillaker, historien til Lillaker, den tror jeg kan bli ganske morsom. Den här utgaven av, av arkitekturtidsskrift og kota har også vanlige tekster i seg. På Morgenbladets tidsskriftsportal så kan du läsa et essay av Embret Rognerød om Oslo-hiphopens forhold til byen. Bare gå in på morgenbladet.no-portalen. Nu har vi kommet, kommet til øh, den spalten i, i, i podcasten hvor vi prøver å, å hjelpe deg som hører på å få fylt på med, med litt mer øh, kulturell kapital. Øh, vi tar in folk fra, fra redaktion, som kan hjelpe deg til å finne spennende ting å lese og se og høre eller, eller være med på. Øh, I dag representert ved, ved Hanne Østli Jakobsen. Hei sånn. Hallo. Øh, har du noe no, no kapital du kan øh, peke våre lyttere mot? Akkurat i dag så syntes jeg at, eller for tiden, så er jeg helt hekta på en geologisk epoke. Jaha. Så jeg tenkte jeg skulle anbefale en geologisk epoke. <laughs> Ingenting som å anbefale en, en geologisk epoke. Det er, altså, det er en, 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 en tidsalder, rett og slett. Da. En tidsalder, ja. en æra. Det er mange ord for dette her. Ja. Men, uh, Hvordan kan man nyte den her uh, epoken? Fortrinnsvis. Uh, altså, enten kan du gå ut og bare se i naturen, liksom. men uh, det jeg har gjort i det siste er å lese mange, litt for mange artikler om antroposen. Dette ordet for 
menneskehetens ära som geologerna nu diskuterar då. Så det är er epoken vi muligens trer in i akkurat nu eller vi har trädd in i med, med altså, vi, det moderna. Altså vi har på måttet trädd. Ok, diskussionen är er, er, eh, har jorden blivit så grundläggande sett ändrad av mänsklig aktivitet att det vill synas i i det geologiska liksom i jord jordlagen då. När forskare om 10000 år tar upp såna jordprover så vill de se det i sån här här kom den linjen av hur människan gör sig själv synlig. Om om det finns forskare om 10000 år så så är er det det de lurer på då. och visst det vi svar på det frågan är er ja, visst det är er sån att det vi gör nu synes, så bör det definieras som en geologisk epoke för det är er ena måten man definierar epoka på. Nej, ja det är er nettop som man definierar epoken. Mm. Det er, um, uh, man ser ändringarna i jordlagarna uh, härifrån till härifrån till härifrån till härifrån liksom ja. um, och så är jura tiden var fördi man fant någon typ av fossila i akkurat det laget och ja, och en viss liksom det er viss mängd karbon i det mm. och vad slags liksom, ja grundstoffer som är er där och och såna ändringar som som avtegnar sig som jord um, jord um, striper då uh, og akkurat nu så er vi det som heter Holocene. Uh, det er liksom veletablert. Men så for en stund siden så var det noen som foreslo ok, men det bør hete Antropocene. Ja. Menneskehetens sittsalder. Det er en utrolig navlebeskuende måte å, å beskrive hele jordens um, historie på. Men uh, den diskussionen har varit pågående en stund, og så kom det liksom nå, for, for et par uker siden så begynte det å komme ganske mange artikler sånn, nå er vi der, endelig. Nå har Antropocene mm. blitt bestemt at vi er der. Altså, jeg er sånn, ok, um, og sånn er det jo aldri i forskningen, eller i vitenskapen. Det er en superlang prosess. Uh, det som har skjedd er at den gruppen i den internasjonale stratigrafiske kommissionen, som, som skal bestemme dette her, har uh, uttalt på en konferanse at de mener at om vi bestemmer oss for at antroposen er en greie, og det tror alle, men det er en skikkelig lang prosess, så startet det i 1950. Ok, hvorfor i 1950? Fordi det var da vi begynte å sprenge atombomber, ja. og dermed slappe ut en del radioaktive stoffer som i mye større kvanta enn det noen gang har vært før, da, eller ja. noen, noen eh, isotoper og noen, noen spesielle varianter som bare kommer fra atom. Som vi nu finner overalt. Eh. Som du nå vil finne igjen i i jordlaget runt omkring av hela jorden då. Ja. Det var ett problem för såna förfalskare som ska förfalska Maria och sånt att det nog är det så tydligt märka visst ting kom från vår tid att du 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 kan inte lag malinga så att den framstod gammal det ett av de som sker där i alla fall där inbillar mig. Det hörs riktigt ut. Utan att jag har hört om det detta måste jag checka. Ja. Nej men så där Hvis du vill ha liksom grundhistorien på detta här då så är er det en nettsida som heter The Conversation som har lagt en en väldigt god genomgångsartikel av liksom vad som är er grejen med antropocen, vad man diskuterar och hvor vi står nu. Och så efter att man läst den så kan man gå på Gizmodo och läsa artikeln There is a lot of confusion about what geologic epoch we're in. Det är er en, er en intressant diskussion fördi att Okej, okay, hvis du välger att bli geolog och så är er du basically på end of history. Akkurat nu med mindre vi dör ut i löpet av 300 år da, så är er det att snacka om. Det är er så stora tidsspann mm. alla geologiska epoker. Det är er, er i 10.000 års klassen, någon av de större alltså som jura och sånting, de har er miljoner av år. Så vi får ikke noen flere Så hvis du, skal, hvis du noen gang skal være interessert i geologiske epoker Så er faktisk nå tiden liksom. Ja, da, da får vi jo bare gripe, gripe sjansen nå som vi, vi, vi har den 
Hannes Jakobsen för att ha tusen tack för för tipset. I i morgonbladet på nettopp papper så kan du läsa väldigt mycket mer om uh, antroposen begreppet för jag skriver Henrik Svensen om det i i forskningsfronten. I tillägg så ska vi lägga ut länkar till de två texterna han nämnt i i artikeln till det podcasten. Det var allt vi hade för den den uken. Om du liker det du hör här på Morgonbladets podcast så fortell väl gärna vänner och familje om oss. Och i tillägg om du går in på iTunes och ger oss en god tillbakemelding där så hjälper det oss en hel massa. Musiken du hör i bakgrunden är er laget av Beglomeg och Odne Mesfur. Jag heter Askel Materåsare. Vi hörs. <tryk>